Paracast, with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Bietting. This episode of the Paracast is brought to you by Audible.com. Download a free audiobook of your choice today at audiblepodcast.com slash Paracast. That's audiblepodcast.com slash Paracast. And now, on with the show. So, Dr. Marcel, or Jess, let's just call him Jess because he was gracious enough to let us do that. You wrote this book, The Roswell Legacy. What was your goal in mind here? To set the story down or to vindicate a point of view or what? Well, I wanted to establish my dad's credibility with his training and documentation and uh, just to make uh, people know that he was not some guy who made up uh, stories and uh, and he knew what he was talking about. So basically that's what I wanted to do was just to establish his credibility, his training, his background, and uh, go from there. Jess, some people try to dispute his credentials and his experience. Mm-hmm. Now, how do you respond to things like that? By showing him his record. He was an intelligence officer with the 509th, which was a group of hand-picked gentlemen to drop a bomb on Japan. He went to radar school. He went to intelligence school. As a matter of fact, he was on the faculty of the of the Army Air Force Intelligence School. So he knew what he was talking about. And his OER reports are excellent. So, you know, this destroys the, the, the skeptics who, if they don't like the message, you try to kill the messenger. Are there specific things that maybe you didn't know about him that you discovered later in his life or after his passing? Well, yeah, I went through his records and I found out uh, that uh, he was even more credible than I thought he was, you know. In what sense? What kind of information well, did you I went find through, out? I went through, I went through his uh, officer evaluation reports and I saw his training schedule, you know, the decorated war hero. I uh, learned of all the medals that he got when he was in the war in the Pacific, you know, so that's what really uh, made me proud of him. In terms of your own personal introduction, let's kind of take people back because we had you on the show a year or two ago where you described how you first saw this sample of a fragment of the crash at Roswell. How did this come to your attention? You know, you know, my dad had, uh, was sent out to the this ranch to pick up uh, samples of, of some sort of uh, craft that, that uh, crashed to the ground out there. And uh, as it turns out, as he you know, he, our house is on the way to the base, so instead of going straight to the base, he swung by the house, even though it was uh, late at night, to show my mother and myself what was down on the ground out there. So uh, he was very excited about that, so that's how I got to, uh, a chance to see this. He did this because it's something very unique, and, uh, and again, he wanted my mother and myself to look at this because we'll never see anything like this again. So what exactly did you see at that particular point in time? Maybe you just refresh our memories before we progress right. with your story. Okay, well, what he did, he uh, pre-positioned a lot of this debris on the kitchen floor of our house in, in Roswell. And uh, it consisted of a lot of foil-like uh, materials, some uh, beams with uh, strange writing on them, I guess if you can call it that, and some black plastic uh, material that I could not identify either. I could describe it in ordinary terms like Bakelite or things like that. But there's a lot of this uh, strange foil that he brought in. Well, Jesse, uh, a question about that. I think there's been a lot of interest in the I-beam and yeah. the, the characters on it, which you've described as looking as if they were sort of a purplish hue. But there was also a description in the book about how they seemed to be most visible when light was reflecting off of them. Is that kind of like 
what you would see with a refractive surf- surface, like a Fresnel lens, where it really becomes more obvious what it is when there's light being refracted through it. These were uh, a geometric type figures written along the inner surface of this uh, beam that I was examining. And mm-hmm. when you held up the light, you could see that uh, they were semi-reflective, They're almost like a metallic hue, metallic uh, purple-violet hue. And there's, uh, you know, a lot of these uh, little figures in print along the edge of this thing. And so they were semi-reflective. Of are you describing hieroglyphic-type images here? Yeah, my first impression was hieroglyphs. You know, okay. I thought, hey, right. look at those hieroglyphs on there. But, uh, but on closer inspection, it wasn't hieroglyphics, but it was, it was uh, geometric symbols like... Uh, Spheroids, oblate spheroids, truncate triangles, um, oh, circles, you know, things like that. Uh, but uh, all lined up along the inner surface of this uh, of this beam. There's one that I could uh, recall for sure. It looked like a uh, truncated pyramid with a ball on top of it. And these were solid, not line drawings. Because I could recall that as a familiar object, like a seal balancing a ball on its nose there. Now, some people want to say, hey, this was a project mogul balloon. This was really a balloon and yeah, that's, not that's, some kind of craft that they couldn't identify. Yeah, yeah, that was the secondary story. You know, they first tr- tried the weather balloon uh, with its radar targets, then they tried the mogul balloon with its radar targets. And uh, the only difference between the mogul balloon and the weather balloon is that uh, the mogul balloon had uh, microphones, which it carried up into the stratosphere to to listen for any possible sonic vibrations from a distant nuclear explosion, say, in the Soviet Union. But, you know, the only thing secret about the uh, mogul balloon was its mission. The material was just off-the-shelf material, very much much like a weather balloon. Well, now, let's let's drill down on that for a moment, Jess, because um, I know there have been people over the years who have claimed that the, uh, I guess, let's just understand something here. The, the mogul balloon had this foil material, but then there was a paper backing, right? Right. And that yeah. paper was attached to the foil with this tape. Is that correct? Well, no, what this was, this was like a, a tin foil on a, in a, on a gum wrapper. You know, there, there's a paper backing there. The, the, the paper backing was just to uh, add structural uh, integrity to this. Right. If you use right. just plain old foil, it has been too flimsy, so they, they backed it with paper. Well, there's this talk about this tape. And, and in the book, you specifically mentioned that your daughter... Uh, Denise, she had found some of this tape mm-hmm. and had acquired it. And um, I guess this tape supposedly was manufactured by some kind of a toy manufacturer and has some kind of characters printed on it. Now, I, I assume when she got a hold of this, you saw this tape. What was this tape actually originally used for in the mogul balloon? Well, I think uh, manufactured by a toy company. Uh, it was mm-hmm. scotch tape with flowers on it. And uh, I'm not sure what they use it for, but if that's where it came from. Yeah, after the war, they they had a lot of this uh, scotch tape with flowers on it, and uh, that's what they used on the mogul balloon, you know, to, to affix the foil to balsa wood sticks like a. Cup. I see. Okay. And that's that's where that came in. And these flowers, I mean, obviously, there's got to be a huge qualitative difference between seeing ink printed on paper versus what you're describing as these solid characters that really seemed to, to gleam purple when light fell on them, as if they were almost laser-etched. Well, you know, the flowers, you know, are, of course, line drawings, and, uh, and they're right, not right. solid, but the, the, the cells I saw were solid in uh, nature, and, uh, and the, believe me, they were not flowers. And the, you know, the tape that they used on the mobile balloon was about an inch or inch and a half wide from the description, and the symbols I saw were along the inner edge of this beam, which were not 
on tape, of course, and much, much smaller than, than the uh, tape on a mobile phone would have been. It's also safe to assume that um, there was no beam-like metallic structure used anywhere in the mogul balloon, correct? Yeah, it's it sticks like a kite. You know, it's on the Rollin radar target, and they used uh, wooden sticks to, uh, you know, you know, for the basic structure of the device. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, something that is curious, uh, Jess, and I don't think we, uh, we've asked you this before, but, of course, you know about uh, the multiple affidavits, I guess, that Walter Hott had produced, and there was the one affidavit at the very end of his life that there's some concern about because of the involvement in Don Schmidt in, in getting it from uh, from uh, Walter Hott. But I'm curious, when your father passed, he made no attempt to create any such affidavit. Is that correct? Uh, that's correct. Why do you think that's the case, Jess? Why he didn't do an affidavit? Yeah, I mean... Well, I have no idea... His death was rather sudden. I don't think that uh, he realized uh, that his death was impending like that, uh, like Walter Howard. Okay. And the reason I ask this, you know, there's that picture, and it's uh, reproduced on page 66 of the book. There's that infamous picture of your dad with the radar target debris on the floor, and he's looking up. And I think everybody who sees that picture instantly recognizes the look in his face. Exactly. <laughs> Which is, you know, just that he's looking up going, and I can't believe they're having me do this. Yeah, you got to be kidding me. You know? <laughs> did, did he ever talk to you about that photo? Curious. No, I, I didn't know it existed until after he died. You know, we never, because uh-huh. we never really discussed this in the family very much, because uh, basically he was uh, following orders not to talk about it. So even in the family, we didn't really discuss this very much, and uh, and I had no knowledge of these photographs until, until uh, fairly recently. So your mother also, presumably, I mean, there were conversations, I'm just presuming this, between your father and your mother that you weren't privy to. Mm-hmm. Oh, sure. What was her stance on the secrecy issue? I mean, she wasn't a member of the military, so, you know, here your dad, let's say, presumably tells her something. Yeah. She never really let any of that out? Well, she was a good housewife, good wife, you know, and loyal. And uh, she was, as I was, also told never to talk about this. So this was uh, kind of put down, you know, it's in the back of your mind, of course, but uh, the uh, the message was don't talk about it, and we followed that fairly strictly. Uh, I guess it would be passing references, you know, when I was at home, but uh, in the growing up years, but but uh, my dad really didn't start talking about this or really released this until after he was interviewed by Stanton Friedman in 1978, I believe it was. And uh, I was out of the house by that time. I was no longer at home, so we never really discussed this. Hmm. As it stands, basically, the discussions he had with Stanton Friedman are what basically amount to, not an affidavit, obviously, but that was the first time that he was then speaking about this to anybody. So why do you think, after all these years of him keeping quiet and not talking to you or his wife about it, why do you think he started speaking to Stanton? Well, you know, it's 30 years later. He figured this is something that uh, should be told to the public, that uh, the public needs to know what what's going on over our heads. And uh, I believe that's why he did that, because he was no longer in the military, and he felt at that point that uh, even though he took the, he was ordered not to talk about that, he figured enough is enough, I'll go ahead and start revealing what I know about this. At a particular point of time where he started talking about it, did anybody come from the military and say, hey, Jess, don't do this? Not to my knowledge. You know, of course, I was no longer at home at that time. So uh, uh, I was practicing medicine up here in Montana. In '78, so that's my knowledge. He was never uh, costed or, you know, interviewed by anybody like that. 
So in your book, Jess, the, I found the most interesting chapter probably be, to be Chapter 6, A Government Official's Admission. You know, David, let's make this the cliffhanger. The government official's admission coming up on the Paracast. Hey, neighbors. As we said, this episode of the Paracast is being brought to you by Audible.com, and you can download a free audiobook of your choice. And you can select from over 40,000 audiobooks and lots, lots more featuring bestsellers about the paranormal, about UFOs, novels. You pick it, and when you get the book that you want, just download to your Apple iPod or over 400 other devices. All right? You can download your free audiobook today, today at audiblepodcast.com slash Paracast. That's audiblepodcast.com slash Paracast. This offer only good for USA listeners. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. Hi, this is Bud Hopkins, and you're listening to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg, David Jedney, and I completely enthusiastically endorse this program. It's an absolutely great program with opportunities to stretch out and talk. We're talking to Jesse Marcel, Jr., and he is the author, along with Linda Marcel, of the Roswell Legacy, subtitled The Untold Story of the First Military Officer at the 1947 Crash Site. So, Jess, in the book, in Chapter 6, there is this, uh, for me, it's probably the most interesting thing, really, in the whole book, because uh, I don't know that you've told the story before. I could be wrong about that. But for the benefit of our of our audience, who perhaps has not yet read the book, tell us a little bit about how you came to be sitting in a government official's office talking about this topic, if you would. Okay, sure. You know, I was uh, busy in my office here in Helena, and uh, my secretary intercepted a phone call from somebody from Washington. And uh, he uh, said, I want to talk to Dr. Marcel. And uh, she said, well, he's busy. He said, I want to talk to Dr. Marcel. I am so-so. And so she interrupted me, and uh, I talked to this gentleman. And he said, I understand you're going to coming to Washington for a, a meeting. Now, I think it was about UFOs, as a matter of fact. I said, that's right, I am. He said, when you get here, I want to talk to you. So uh, he identified himself, and he says, when he... So when I got to um, got to Washington, there was a message on the phone from this gentleman, and he said, "I want to meet with you tomorrow afternoon in the Capitol building." And uh, so I, I said, "Well, sure, I'd be glad to." So I went to the Capitol building, met with him, a very nice gentleman, on a first name basis, and uh, he said, "Well, we need to talk about what you saw in Roswell that uh, night." And I said, uh, he, "He said, do you want to talk in a secure room?" And I said, uh, "Well, it doesn't matter." to me because I'm not going to, I've already said anything I know about this, you know, and he said, but I might tell you something, so we'll talk in a secure room. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you bet. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> uh, so we, we got on the elevator, and believe me, you know, in the Capitol building, there's a lot of floors below the main floor in the building because there's a lot of office space, meeting rooms down below there that I had no knowledge of. So we went into this one very nice pine panel room with a big desk and uh, pictures of the forefathers uh, along the, the top of the room there. 
And uh, he sat at the head of the table, I sat to his right, and there was a book on the table called Majestic. Uh, it was written by Whitley Strieber. And he said, this is not fiction, pointing to the book, meaning Roswell was not fiction. Of course, Whitley Strieber's book is fictional, but it's based on an actual event. And I said, he said, well, what do you know about this, Roswell? So I went ahead, and I, I told him all I knew about that. And, I, and he says, that's right. And he said, you know, I asked him a question. When are you guys going to let people know what really happened out there? And he said, it goes up to him. He did it yesterday, but it was not up to him. And uh, so he asked me if I'd ever received any threatening phone calls. I said, I've gotten some very interesting calls, but uh, no threats of any kind. You know? He said, but some people have. And uh, he gave me his name and, and the telephone number to call so that I ever get any uh, threatening calls, which I, of course, have not. But anyway, he admitted to me, in his words, this is not fiction. Being Roswell, the event itself was not fiction, which I already knew, but uh, it was kind of interesting to get a uh, government official telling me this. What, what do you think was his motivation in getting you to come in and talk to him? You know, he said he was working on uh, trying to find out who has the debris at this point uh, and why are they keeping it a secret because uh, they're, they're spending public money to keep this uh, under wraps and he said that's illegal. So I think it was his uh, task to uh, find out as much as he could from witnesses such as I about what they knew about this. So, so basically, that. he wasn't the one that, you're basically then sort of assuming that he was following orders from above to do this, that he wasn't initiating this himself. That's right. That's right. That's, that mm -hmm. was my impression. Have you ever spoken to him since then? No, I've never had the occasion to talk with him. Well, you see... I think some of our audience members would, would at this point say to you, call him up, <laughs> ask him what's going on. <laughs> it always seems like when people uh, look into this topic, they, they end up running in circles. So, you know, it's interesting that you're saying that he was looking to see, to try to figure out where the debris ended up. And it sort of supports the idea that whatever group collected this material is a group that is not answerable to anybody. That's basically what he told me. He says, they think it's in the hands of, and, what, and this is his term the hands of a, a black government where uh, these people are unelected, have unlimited funds, and answer to no one except themselves. He thinks that is the group that has this, and he's just trying to investigate who they are, where they're coming from, and you know what can they do about it. All right. Now, Jess, obviously you're not going to reveal his name, and we understand that. We're not even going to ask you that. But can you tell us that, what kind of rank this guy was at? He did identify himself as being a member of the NSC or NSA. The National Security Agency. Yeah. But he met you in the Capitol building. Yeah, he worked in the Capitol building, or at least out of the Capitol building. Hmm. Okay, but there was no rank, no mention of a rank? No, no. See, now that's interesting. And and the reason I say that's interesting is that he didn't ask you not to mention that you ever met with him, did he? Did he specifically say this meeting never happened? No, he never said that. Told me. I, I suppose he regrets, you know, he hears a story. Now <laughs> <laughs> not telling him not to talk about this, but he did not tell me don't talk about this. And I see that violating his trust by doing that, but uh, well, I don't. I don't know that you are. I think it's interesting to maybe play a game for a moment here and assume that if he didn't tell you not to say ever mention you had met with him, that perhaps he wanted you to talk about this because obviously. At this point, this happened in the early 90s, right? Right. So at that point, Jess, you were you were already sort of publicly talking about this topic. Yeah. Yeah, my dad had uh, died in 1986. So uh, after he died, then everybody started coming to me for what did I know about this. Mm -hmm. So that's how I got into this act. Right. So at this point, again, let's let's try to understand this guy's motivation because, again, I, I think that this there's something about this. And and in reading the book, like I said, when I when I hit this chapter and I read this, I don't know if I'd ever 
heard you talk about this before. I don't think I had. And when I read this, I thought, now, this is really kind of interesting. And it's almost as if, as I said, you know, usually a guy, let's say, assume he's NSA. Now, at the NSA, National Security Agency, is an organization that officially does not acknowledge its own existence. And basically, it's one of the most top secret agencies in, in the U.S. government. And to my understanding, what they, they're all about communications. They monitor all the communications in the country. That's the, that's sort of the, the task of the NSA. Okay, well, yeah, those are two different, those are two very different things. Um, but if you got a guy working for essentially a very, very hush hush organization inside of the federal government, and he's talking to you knowing that you're publicly talking about the topic, basically says to you, all right, this is, this is real. And he at that point knows that, and if he doesn't say to you, don't mention we've never spoken, don't mention that we've ever met, you know, this, this, if you never said this meeting didn't happen, I mean, to me, it's almost as if, and this is separate from your own memory of what your father brought to the house. Okay, let's put that aside for a moment. It's almost as if either A, he wants you to talk about this to sort of force somebody's hand, or, and I'm curious what your, what your, your comment is about what I'm about to say, or it almost sounds like an attempt to spread some disinformation through you. Well, you see what I'm I never really thought about it along those lines there, but uh, I guess anything is possible. You know, I'm not going to say yes or no on that. Right. No, well, there's possibilities and there's probabilities. And, and I think, again, like I said, the fact that this guy basically says to you, this is real, this is not fiction, it's interesting. Like, I think to myself, why would a guy like this say this to you knowing that you're publicly talking about this? And quite frankly, I think it really more likely than not is to try to have it out in the open so that a hand is forced so that essentially you help do his work for him. That's kind of what it sounds like. Um, Let me throw a devil's advocate idea here out there now that we've kind of raised the point of the motive, which is that we assume that government agencies will often be at lockstep for a particular point of view. You know, so the NSA, everybody's doing this, but maybe there are different factions. And one faction says, you know what, we should get this information out there. Let me talk to this guy, Dr. Marcel, and give him this information and see what he does with it, where he goes with it. Or as you suggested, maybe it is disinformation. But if we look at the positive side of the venue here, maybe it was an effort to promote a revelation of something because this person or this group disagreed with the point of view or the conventional wisdom. Well, it's possible, you know, uh Actually, they tried to use UFOs as a cover-up for top-secret aircraft that they were building. Mm-hmm. So who knows what their motive was. You know, I've not heard this thought before, but uh, it's certainly plausible. Also in the book, Jesse, you talk about uh, the fact that you, it turns out you had a UFO sighting that you had forgotten about, which is another very interesting revelation. Can you tell our audience a little bit about that? Well, you know, the only uh, UFO sighting that, that was really strange that I can really relate to it was just basically like a light in the sky you know and this was uh that was in iraq we were flying back uh, in a pair of uh, black hawk helicopters from kirkwood into balad and late at night and uh i saw and you know military helicopters don't have visible running lights it's all infrared so it takes night vision goggles to to follow them uh, but there's a, a visible light a white light traveling uh fairly high speed going from uh south to north up towards Turkey, and I knew it was not a civilian aircraft because there was certainly no fly zone, and, and no one would fly with with a visible light on the aircraft anyway. 
Mm-hmm. So this was just a light in the sky, and I, you know, I had no explanation for it. Everybody else saw it too. Kind of one of these head scratchers. So here you are serving in the military. Uh, people know who you are. Did people come up and tell you about their UFO experiences, feeling that you would be uh, uh, sympathetic to their stories? You know, I've not had anybody really talk about that. They they basically want to know what what I saw and and what I know. As a matter of fact, I've had flag rank officers uh, sit down with me and, and discuss the issue of Roswell, but uh, I've not, not to recall, had anybody talk about their own UFO experiences. So what's your what's your opinion about um, the other research work, Jess, that's been done about Roswell? I mean, obviously, given your reality, you've interacted with most of the people researching this. I'm guessing certainly probably with a majority of them. What are your personal feelings about some of the people involved in this research? I mean, is there is there are there people you look up to who you think are doing better work um, than others, perhaps? Oh, certainly Stan Friedman is the one that comes to mind on that because uh, he's the one who talked to my dad. They, uh, they, they were good friends with the family. He was good friends with the family. And uh, so Stan Friedman is the kind of person I really look up to. Uh, certainly there's a lot of other people also, but uh, Stan, is, in my feeling, you know, stands head and shoulders above everybody else. Mm-hmm. In the book, basically, you, you come to the conclusion that these are extraterrestrial entities. You know, on the Paracast, we, we talk a lot about this, and one of the things that constantly comes up is the, the issue of deception. Now, let, let's just talk about this for a minute, because, you know, your father comes in with the stuff, and he says, look at this stuff. This is from an alien spaceship, all right? Um, well, he said they use words like, uh, I think, flying saucer. That's what he Okay. Right. So, so he didn't use the term extraterrestrial or, or alien? Not at that time. Uh, he said, but the connotation was there. You know, uh, he was, you know, like I said, the connotation of uh, this is something that came from someplace else, and I think he used words flying saucer to describe that. Because mm-hmm. at that time, you know, there was a lot of sightings in the sky. You know, beginning with Kenneth Arnold or Mount right. Indian, Washington. So, uh, right. and he, uh, the term flying saucer started with uh, Kenneth Arnold. So, I mean, in the book, though, you talk about your personal conclusion that this is potentially, or, or, or you feel, you know, an extraterrestrial. Yeah. And I don't want to put words in your mouth. I mean, that's basically what, what I got from reading your book, is that you feel indeed that there's a high probability these were extraterrestrial. One of the things yeah. that we talk about on the Paracast, getting back to the issue of deception, what keeps coming up is the idea that perhaps what we're dealing with here is a non-human species that wants us to believe it's from another planet, and perhaps isn't. Now, you know, this gets into some, some esoteric stuff, but I just want to, want a clarification on your part. Would you be willing to concede to the idea that we're dealing with non-human thing here that may be not what it appears to be? Non-human that means... Yeah, let me, let me... Well, see, here's the thing, right? Yeah, Um, non-human, but... Right. Uh, So, again, this is a... Long-time listeners to the show know that we... We're trying to sort of unravel this mystery. And if we look at the historical reality of this, at least in terms of mythology and in terms of the the idea that there seems to be throughout much of human history a continuing, I won't, I don't want to call it a conversation, but interaction between non-human beings and humans. And often the non-human beings putting themselves in a position of superiority, you know, where they, you know, there are many different uh, versions of this, you know, uh, uh, the original origins of the gods. We have in uh, Middle Eastern culture, the jinn, 
who uh, seem to be some sort of interdimensional entities that show up, do things, and then leave. And something that I personally put forward on the Paracast is the idea that there's a possibility we're dealing with, with, with creatures that perhaps live on the planet alongside of us and want us to believe that they are from outer space, that they are from another planet, so that we perhaps won't think that they're right next to us, and maybe we'll be more secure in that. I guess what I'm getting at here is that every time we, we hear the term UFO, in, for example, in mass media, we often see the word extraterrestrial sort of associated with it. And it's an extraterrestrial UFO or, or an alien craft. And, and when people hear alien, they automatically think extraterrestrial, where when I hear alien, what I think of is non-human. Do, do you personally think that there's a possibility that what we're dealing with here is a non-human species, technologically advanced to ours, but perhaps that is closer to home than we might think? I'm not asking for a confirmation, just your opinion. Well, you know, my opinion is, no, these are extraterrestrial craft that come from a different, from another solar system, you know, some distance away. And, uh, okay. that is my feeling, because they have been around for a long time, as you pointed out. Uh, there's a cave art that shows what looks like a typical flying saucer. Mm-hmm. There are, uh, uh, paintings done in the Middle Ages, uh, uh, that show things much like flying saucer in the background, like the Madonna and the Child. There's a, famous picture where the artist drew a flying saucer there with a, yep. a man and his dog looking at it, you know, so... Absolutely. Think, Familiar with the image, yes, yes. Yeah. My, my feeling is these are extraterrestrial coming from a different solar system, that these are scientific uh, probes, uh, pretty much like we're sending to Mars and other planets in our own solar system, just to gain information. <laughs> Hi, this is Roger with eFoodsDirect.com, and I just wanted to welcome everyone from the Paracast Show. Hi to Gene and David and everybody out there. Listen, we're here to sponsor this radio show because we really like what Gene and what Dave are doing, and we'd like you to help us support them. Now, we are a long-term storable food company. However, the foods that we produce are low-moisture foods. They're very, very high quality, and you can live on them every day. You can literally cut your grocery bill in half or more than half, maybe as much as 60%, by buying bulk foods from eFoodsDirect.com. But right now, a recession slash depression is on the way. We're advising people to sell the toys in the garage, hawk off the old jewelry you don't use, pour the money into food supplies before it's too late. I'm telling you, it could be too late. We also can provide water filtration, other needs. Call eFoodsDirect.com and let us continue to support Gene and David here. 800-715-4380, 800-715-4380, or go to eFoodsDirect.com. That's eFoodsDirect.com, 1-800-715-4380. Hey, neighbors, the easiest online meeting service go to meeting just got easier if you haven't tried go to meeting now's the time because the new version of go to meeting has fully integrated voice over ip with this new total audio feature you have more audio options by being able to conference through a phone or the web save time save money and be more efficient Hold an online meeting with GoToMeeting. Try GoToMeeting free for 30 days. Visit GoToMeeting.com slash podcasts. That's GoToMeeting.com slash podcasts for a free trial. You're in the podcast with Jesus and David Bandy. You never know what's going to happen next. We're talking to Jesse Marcel, Jr., who wrote with Linda Marcel, The Roswell Legacy, the untold story of the first military officer at the 1947 crash site. 
let's look at the book a little bit further here. Now, in putting this together, is there anything that surprised you about your explorations into your family history and to the UFO mystery in general? I'm not quite sure I understand the question. Uh, Maybe unexpected as opposed to being surprised. Oh, unexpected uh, revelations? No, I don't don't think there's anything uh, really unexpected. You know, like my dad, you know, he was a down-to-earth guy, too. He was, he was uh, very military, and he finally got out in the 50s after he, he quote, said, I had enough of this and got out to go back to Louisiana. My parents and I were pretty close. We uh, uh, really didn't discuss this issue very much, but uh, the only thing that it did for me was to make me very interested in astronomy and cosmology because I realized that, uh, hey, there's other guys out there. We're not the only ones here. Okay, so... In that sense here, looking at everything you've discovered, were you at all interested in talking or try to talk to other people involved in Roswell to get a wider perspective as opposed to your personal and family experiences? No, you know, I just kind of let, you know, if somebody wants to know about this, they can come to me. I don't go out uh, preaching on the street corner you know, about Roswell. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a subject that I know. I happen to be there, you know, just uh, through fate, and if people want to know what I know, I'd be glad to talk to them about that, but I don't go out, you know, uh, intentionally to uh, broadcast this thing. Like I said, I wrote the book, though, just to uh, establish the credibility of my dad, because he was, you know, the skeptics were, were demeaning and trying to uh, uh, make it seem like he wasn't who he really was. Now, growing up in Roswell, Jess, obviously there were other kids whose parents were involved in the military. And this, in 1947, this was big news in town. I think a lot of people are curious about whether or not even your friends talked about this in terms of maybe hearing rumors from their parents, their parents' friends. I mean, obviously, it looks like there was a lot of debris to pick up. And you make the point in the book that if it had actually been a mogul balloon, that the amount of debris would have been pretty minimal versus what appears to have been a large amount of debris, enough to require a transport to take it out. Were there any kind of rumblings or anything from other kids or their parents, or was this just kept completely quiet? Well, you know, when the when the story hit the papers, you know, it was it was kind of a flash in the pan. You know, Walter Howe issued the press release about the Air Force capturing a flying saucer. It hit one edition. Boy, the next day, the story was killed though, because uh, uh, they determined uh, General Rainey, who actually uh, gave my order, gave orders to my dad not to talk about that. He ordered the story be killed, so they issued the second release uh, a day or two later saying that this is nothing, you know, it, it didn't happen, just a, a weather balloon. And so, and my my childhood friends, you know, we just didn't discuss it because hmm. the story was just too fleeting. And I was told not to talk about it to begin with. Well, you had a lot of uh, uh, a lot of willpower and discipline for an 11-year-old. I don't know if I, if I was 11, if I been, this had happened to me, if I had held something, even though my dad had said don't talk about it, I don't know if I could have, like, that would be an invitation to us. You see, in well, that case here, they would have said, hey, man, you know what? I'm going to talk about it, man. You're not going to stop me. And that's it. So there. Well, you know, times have changed. I was a military brat, and I, and I followed orders just like my dad did. So uh, uh, times have changed. It probably wouldn't be like that now, though. Let's look at your personal story a little bit more, too. Okay, so you're retired from the military now. Mm-hmm. You became a doctor. What was your specialty? Your nose and throat, otolaryngology. Uh, I uh, went to the naval training program at Balboa Hospital in San Diego. 
and I became an ENT specialist at that point. You were strictly a military doctor, or did you ever practice privately? Well, you know, initially I, I, I joined the Navy in 1962, just in time to get involved with the Cuban Missile Crisis, which is scary. Uh, but then That's almost a story in itself, I bet. Yeah, yeah I, was, I was on board a troop transport ship, and we were heading in to invade uh, Cuba, and uh, had we done so, I wouldn't be here now. But, uh, but that's, I guess, not to say another story. But I, I was in the Navy for about eight or ten years, got out, then joined the Army National Guard because I wanted to continue with my military, and uh, got to go to flight school at Fort Rucker to become a flight surgeon where you earn your wings. And I was in, you know, I was in private practice at that time. Uh, retired from the National Guard in 1996, got called back to active duty in 2004 for Operation Iraqi Freedom. And uh, so that's, you know, I finally retired in December 2005. So right now you're fully retired, or do you do anything fully, at fully all? Fully retired, yeah, I'm fully retired. You gave up on it. <laughs> yeah, well, at, at uh, 69 or 70, I think it's about time. Now, Jess, it's kind of interesting that you got called back into duty at a point where you'd think that the Army just wouldn't have you come back. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, what what was, I'm just, not it has anything to do with Roswell, the paranormal, but what's your take on that? Uh, why do you think they brought you back in at a point when, uh, you know, I think some people would say, "Why are you even going back? You're 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 a little old for me doing for doing that." What? Why did you think uh, you brought, you got brought in? Well, you know, I spent my 69th birthday in a black hole helicopter flying over the rock. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> as a flight surgeon, I guess they really needed flight surgeons, and uh, it's a critical MOS. And uh, so I was physically fit, and uh, so they said, "Come on in." I said, "Sure, I'd be glad to test the water again here." And, uh, again, it's outside the topic of the show, but uh, I think all our listeners would be curious. What was it like being there in that capacity? I mean, how does it compare to our perception of the situation, I suppose, is the question. Well, you know, I uh, fortunately I enjoyed my tour of Iraq. I was there for 13 months. And it was a very uh, emotional experience to see such bloody mayhem, you know, bombs going off all over the place and being shot at. You know, I just, I, it did change me. It, it uh, made me feel, you know, like our civilization has a long way to go before really, before we are really civilized. Mm. And, uh, you know, it was, it was a shocking experience to see somebody blow themselves up and uh, are getting, you know, under attack with mortars and, you know, it, it does change you. Do you think our, our actions over there are justified in the eyes of the Iraqi people? Well, yes. You know, the Iraqis that I worked with uh, wanted us there. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, just to Boy, but the story, you know, mass Saddam Hussein was a mass murder, just like Hitler. Uh, he had his killing fields, and he had these mass graves that he's filling with people south of Baghdad. I flew many missions to, to those mass graves and just, just almost cried my eyes out with what you saw there, like a woman holding her baby, both shot in the head. And the baby still had a pacifier in smell. It's almost a tear-jerking, tear-provoking experience, but... I hear the emotion, yes. You know, here I see a woman holding her baby, both shot in the head, and the baby with the pacifier in his mouth, you know, that, that changes you, you know. At least that's no longer going on. These are Kurds that he bust in from the north to south of Baghdad and shot them on these mass graves. Walking on graves, seeing baby clothes, women's jewelry. Uh, and, you know, again, that's not going on now. We stopped that. Uh, and it's up to the Iraqis now to establish their own form of government, whether it be a democratic uh, relationship or, or not, I don't know. But at least the killing fields are gone now in Iraq. They exist elsewhere in the planet. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's a very emotional experience to see that. So how do you feel about 
the American political argument saying, you know what, we spent enough time in Iraq, let's get the heck out of there. Well, I think, you know, by the time I was leaving in 2005, I could see uh, a turnaround beginning, and apparently uh, it's progressed since that time. We're, we're turning provinces over to the Rockies for, for their own governorship. And uh, I think our our time there, you know, I think we're, we're coming to the end of the mission, so to speak, because we're able to turn the uh, rock back over to the Rockies for their purposes in that. It's it's an oil rich nation, and uh, they they can stand alone. I think. So I think we'll be, I think we'll be getting out of there in the near future. I don't, don't know how much longer, but it's it's all depends on the conditions on the ground, of course. All right, let's get off that topic because uh, certainly our listeners don't 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 uh, tune into the Paracast for that. There, there's a question I want to ask you about a statement in the book on page seventy three. Uh, it says here, by July tenth, nineteen forty seven, all of the debris had been vacuumed. Parentheses my father's words, quote, close parentheses, from the crash site and moved to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio. Two questions. Your father's words as in he told you that? And yeah. so he said that to you specifically? Well, yeah. You know, before he died, you know, I used to call home once a week on the weekend, yeah, like clockwork. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. uh, I guess he had gone out to Roswell at the behest of one of the uh, local television stations in New Orleans, and right. they went out to the debris field where it actually was. I've never been out there myself to the debris field. But I talked to him, and I said, you know, jokingly, I said, well, was there any of it left out there so that uh, people could go pick it up? And his words were, no, 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 they vacuumed it up. In other words, they, they were not going to leave any shred of that uh, device out there. So, again, that, that uh, leads credence to the fact that this was not a weather balloon. Because if right. it was, they just, uh, well, you know, but they vacuumed it up. That's, what, that's how important they felt uh, the recovery operation was. <laughs> Fate Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest on all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. Paracast with Dr. Jesse Marcel Jr. And he and Linda Marcel, is that Mrs. Marcel? Yes. Okay. Wrote the Roswell Legacy, the Untold Story of the First Military Officer at the 1947 Crash Site. David, you want to pick up on that? Yeah, what I wanted to ask uh, Jess was the, the statement that the debris had been moved to Wright Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio, that was something your father confirmed for you, correct? Well, you know, that's not really, because what he did, he, he, he flew the debris to uh, Fort, uh, General Ramey's office in Fort Worth, at Fort, right. Fort Worth Army Airfield. 
And my understanding from there is that uh, uh, it was then uh, brought to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. But my dad didn't say because he was not in the, on the loop to know. That's what I kind of. That's why I was wondering where that where that statement came from because I would assume that he wouldn't have been on the loop on that. Yeah, because if you didn't need to know, you didn't know. In other words, they they're very compartmentalized. You know, use compartmentalization to achieve secrecy. Here's a question for you. Uh, we've heard stories about other people in Roswell stating that um, they had been threatened by the military with uh, the possible pain of death for talking about this. Did you ever get the sense, or did your father ever tell you that he had been threatened in that way? No, I don't think he had, because uh, he was a good soldier. He was ordered by a two-star not to talk about this. And furthermore, he used to make it known that his family was not to talk about that either. So, uh, But he followed orders, as we did. So at this point, though, you're openly talking about You've got a book about it. We can then assume that you've not been told by anybody not to speak, because otherwise you would have called your government official guy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they wouldn't dare tell me not to talk about it now. It's too late. <laughs> Too late. Okay, let's kind of maybe look at a perspective here. The Roswell incident happened in 1947. Starting in the 1970s, we started getting stories about it. Up till then, there were rumors about a crash in Aztec, New Mexico. And did you ever hear of that one? Uh, not till fairly recently. You know, I'm not a you know I'm an observer, so to speak. You know, I've, I've observed. There's one event there in Roswell, but I'm not an avid reader about UFO uh, things. So I, I did not uh, was not aware of the Aztec until fairly recently. But now you've spoken at events, at Jess. You 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 you've spoken at various events covering the topic. What's your general feel for the people who are interested in this? And the reason I ask that is that on the Paracast, we we sort of take heat from both sides, the debunkers who don't like the fact that we're talking about this in a serious way, but also what we like to call the doe-eyed believers that will pretty much buy any story about this and get very upset with us when we challenge certain people in the field to, to come up with some kind of a validation of their experience. And just, you know, for the record, and I think I've said this before on the show and might have even said it when you were on, but as far as I'm concerned, your sincerity and the fact that I, I really don't see what benefit you ever had to come out and speak about this. You know, I, I can't I can't imagine you're going to make a, a huge amount of money on your book. I, I'd be thrilled if that were the case. But I don't imagine that's the case. So so as far as I'm personally concerned, Jess, you are uh, the closest thing I feel that we have to a smoking gun on Roswell, as we're ever going to have. I, I think your word is impeccable. So just, just for the record... I want to say that because uh, there's not many people in this field I feel that way about. I think what you're doing here is conveying a truthful uh, account of what happened to you. And and I don't I don't see any hidden agendas in your world. I, I think that uh, of all the people we've spoken with on this show, you're clearly in the top 5% of people who I find highly credible. So, and you don't need to thank us, uh, you know, we thank you for for being that way in a well, field where there are so many people who well, I mean, look, we appreciate you're coming forward with us. And, you know, being a sober voice in what is otherwise, I think many people would agree, a polluted pool. But what's your feeling about this on a personal level? Just, you know, you've dealt with all these people who come up to you and probably want you to give them answers to what's going on. I mean, how do you feel about that? Well, you know, I am not reluctant to talk about this, obviously. And uh, and I, I think that people need to know what's going on uh, mm-hmm. above our heads here. And, you know, these meetings and talks that I... Gets people. Most people are very receptive about that, and I can tell that by the, the quality of questions I get at the end of the uh, of the uh, talk there. And I think most people are very accepting about the fact that Roswell is what it was. 
that certainly was not the only event like that, that there's others. You know, you know the Soviet Union had UFO events in Europe, and so it, it's a worldwide phenomenon, but most people uh, accept this. As a matter of fact, I just got back from giving a little talk in Reagan, Germany. Uh, the Germans are very accepting of this uh, event there. They had very good questions, and, uh, and I think, again, most people are accepting of this. What event was that that you spoke at? Uh, there was a uh, meeting of, like a UFO meeting there in Reagan, Germany. And uh, is organized by a group, and uh, I, along with other speakers, were invited to talk there. Just out of curiosity, how many people are in the audience? We're just curious. I think there's about 300, 360, <laughs> something like that. That's almost more than we can get for some of the events here. <laughs> well, the Germans are very open about this, you know, they, and they had to travel long distance because Reagan, Germany, is in Bavaria. It's in a real out of the way place, uh, just a, a little hamlet. So they were coming in from Berlin from Munich, uh, from all over the, the, the country there. You know, I wanted to ask you about something in perspective here. Going back to what you told us earlier, meeting this NSA guy, and we were speculating about their motives. Now, these days in the UFO field, there is a movement towards disclosure, the belief that the government knows what's going on and they should tell us. Well, now having been in the military spent your life in the military, knowing what your father experienced during his life in the military, knowing about this event, having a sighting, having this NSA meeting. Do you think the government really knows any answers at all? Well, I'm waiting for the disclosure to occur. Some time ago, NASA conducted a survey of what will happen not if but when the big uh, announcement is made. And it, as it turns out, most people would be accepting of it, and that's my experience. There's a few people, the you know, really religious fundamentalists would not be very accepting of this, but uh, but I'm waiting for the disclosure to, to occur, because I'd like to be able to tell, well, I'm alive, not tell people I told you so, you know. It may not happen, you know, during my lifetime, but if it doesn't, yeah, I'm still satisfied with what I know. But there may be a slow release of information, you know, uh, to prepare the public for the announcement. And the United Kingdom just released a bunch of files that they had. And uh, I'm waiting for our government to do the same thing, but so far, in vain. So you definitely feel they know something and they do have a final oh, yeah. answer. Yeah, you know, it's not the military. You know, people won't say, well, it's the military. No, no, I don't think the military really has that uh, much to do with it anymore. Things have been taken out of their hands. Do you think presidential you know, candidates, when they mention and they have in the past, well, we're going to try to get information, and then, of course, they get into office, and like the other promises they don't keep, that one they don't keep either. So do you think that maybe the day the president-elect becomes president, he's inaugurated, somebody from the NSA or higher up goes into his office and says, Mr. President, this is what's going on, and no, we can't talk about it. Well, you know, I think the president should be uh, alerted to this, you know, uh, informed about what's going on. And it may be that, you know, they, they feel, like, oh, boy, I'm going to finally get to a place where I can get this information now, but maybe there's something that uh, they feel should not be released. Maybe there's something that we really don't need or won't, would not want to know about. Uh, it's kind of scary in that regard. But I think they have good intentions, but for some reason, once they're there, there's a reason that they, they don't want to disclose it. Mm. Just what about the stories about people like uh, Corso and the reverse engineering of these materials into current technologies? Do you think there's any veracity to those uh, stories? 
think uh, superficially there may be. Uh, I, you know, I don't know that uh, we've got the uh, night vision goggles or transistors, things like that, right. alien right. technology, because I think that we're smart enough to have done it ourselves. As a matter of fact, you could take a, a device like a transistor and trace it all the way back to its very beginnings. So, I, you know, it may be that they're getting some reverse engineering, some information, but I think it's almost like giving a digital wristwatch to Da Vinci and telling him to reproduce it. You couldn't do it because it takes a certain amount of technology to reverse engineer things like that. Right. Right. You have to be part way there before you can go the rest of the yeah, way. Right. If you're looking yeah, at technology, sure, if you're looking at technology that may be hundreds or thousands of years ahead of us, how would we know? I mean, if you, we mentioned this, David's mentioned it on the show. Say, for example, we go back 100 years. And it doesn't have to be 100 years. It could be 50 years. Hand them an Apple MacBook, you know, one of the current popular notebook computers, and say, okay, figure it out. Well, they know it has a keyboard. They know it has a screen, but they're not going to figure out how to reverse engineer that, are they? Yeah, that's exactly right. No, it's, uh, it takes a certain amount of technology to be able to reproduce advanced technology. You know? I understand. Listen, we're just about out of time. Maybe you could tell our listeners... Where can we get this book? Any of the usual offenders like Amazon or something like that? Yeah, there they can get it from them. I do have a website that they can get an autographed copy from. It's uh, jessemarcelsenior.com if they want an autographed copy, or else they get it from Amazon. Yeah, and there's other booksellers with it. And by the way, that's senior with an SR. This sure. Okay, so if we get it from you, and we're going to link to this, by the way, at thepowercast.com. So when you click. On the name of the book, The Roswell Legacy, you're going to go right to the site. You're going to see Dr. Marcel in all his glory there, staring at you. <laughs> you're going to see Linda Marcel, who looks like just a lovely person. Seriously. And by the way, I wanted to ask you this, maybe a final question here. And that is, all right, you have kids. Do they have interest in any of this? Well, you know, initially, you know, when all this started coming out, my, my younger children were, were kind of scared about this thing, you know, frightened about what's going on out there. But they've grown to accept it. And, uh, yeah, they, like I, have accepted the possibility, not the possibility, but the fact of uh, alien extraterrestrial visitations. And, uh, and uh, like me, they, you know, it's just matter of fact now. What line of work are your kids in? Well, uh, I have one girl who's becoming a, a nurse. Uh, I have another one just, they're housewives, basically. I have a boy in, in a computer technology, and one uh, raises horses, and so just about everything you mentioned that they're in, <laughs> they're in Montana. <laughs> okay, and the name of the book is The Roswell Legacy by Jesse Marcel Jr., written with his wife, Linda Marcel. We want to thank you for, number one, of course, your service to the country for so many years, whether people agree or disagree. With what we did in Iraq, you have to honor the service of people who risked their lives. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's a very important point. You can order the book by clicking on the name of the book, The Roswell Legacy, at thepowercast.com. And the reason we want you to do that is because you can order a copy. And if you order it from Jesse, he gets more money for the book. That's a secret of book publishing industry. We want to mention that. That's a secret, you know, that people don't know. If you buy it directly from the author... They don't get the dollar and a half that the publisher gives you. They actually get real money and he'll autograph it for you. And that means the book will be worth twice as much. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for joining us on the PowerCast. Well, well, thanks for the invitation. I enjoy talking with you. Thank you very much, Dr. Mus. So we very much appreciate your time. Well, I appreciate that, too. Thank you very much, sir. <laughs> 
Ray Perkins, a reclusive veteran burned out from the Gulf War, lives tortured by relentless, perplexing nightmares. Nightmares of a horrific battle in deep space and of a mysterious woman suffering in agony for her devastated world. A woman not yet born, calling across centuries to him. Then, a coincidence leads him to his destiny, his chance to alter the universe. Attack! Attack! of the Rockaways. The former fiction editor for Star Wars and Indiana Jones, Robert Simpson, writes, The soul of the novel Attack of the Rockoids lies in its heart and passion for building a convincing tale of a love that spans the galaxy. A thrilling story. Attack, Attack of the Rockoids is available now. Read a sample chapter and get a special discount off of the cover price at our website, rockoids.com. That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S dot com. Attack, Attack of the Rockaways, a novel in the grand science fiction tradition. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. So I have to tell you that Dr. Jesse Marcel, I agree with you, David, this guy is a smoking gun. Absolutely. He is a salt of the earth kind of guy. He's someone who is as credible as anyone you've ever met. And when you listen to the story that he has to tell, he's a man of few words. He doesn't expand on things maybe as much as you'd like. You listen to that and you say, this guy really handled something really strange when he was a young boy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as far as I'm concerned, take every other Roswell story, put it to the side. I know what I saw when I was 11, and I know that you can remember those things very clearly if they have enough impact on you. To hear him talk about what happened, to have read the book, leaves in my mind absolutely no doubt that he held something and handled some stuff that was very unusual, most likely not ours, not our stuff. I see no reason for this guy to make up any aspect of this story. He just is not that kind of person. I guess when I said smoking gun, because I think I might have said that to him, there's no doubt that whatever else people want to say about Roswell, Jesse Marcel Jr. handled some stuff that wasn't ours. And I think that we can stop right there. I mean, I know that there's all this other witness testimony and all this other stuff swirling around this case. So many of the people around it are gone now. Personally, I don't believe anything that Don Schmidt says, so I pretty much discount anything that comes out of him at this point. And we don't need it. We don't need his meanderings and his craziness. Basically, we have Dr. Jesse Marcel Jr., talking about what his father said that night, the things that happened afterwards, you know, because like we said, Gene, this guy, we don't think he's making stuff up. So when he talks about meeting with a government official in the Capitol building and this guy saying stuff to him, whatever was said in the motivation and the reality of whatever was said to him is separate from the fact that I believe that he heard it, that he went and had a meeting with this guy and this guy told him stuff. Now, do we know the veracity of the guy? No. But we know that Jesse Marcel Jr. handled stuff. There's no question about it. He's the real deal for my money. That's the beginning and the end of the Roswell story. It lies in Dr. Jesse Marcel Jr.'s hands and his testimony. And we're not talking about somebody who's 96 years old and barely remembers where the bathroom is. We're talking about somebody who is, what, late 60s, early 70s. Well, coherent enough. Totally, totally. Well, they send him to Iraq at 69 or something like that? 68 years old. They call him up and they say, could you go and do a 13-month turnover there? You know, at that point, you don't call any 68-year-old and say, hey, could you come out and play war? You just don't do it. So 
Yeah, there we have it. Dr. Jesse Marcel Jr., The Proof That Roswell Happened. The book's called The Roswell Legacy, The Untold Story of the First Military Officer at the 1947 Crash Site from Jesse Marcel Jr. and Mrs. Marcel, Linda Marcel. Now, on the other side of the PowerCast, we've got another listener. His name is Mike Cleland, and he has several very fascinating, maybe frightening experiences to report, and we're going to hear that on the other side of the Paracast. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti. Now, we've made a call out to listeners to the Paracast, regular participants of the Paracast community forums, to tell us about their personal encounters. And some have been ordinary, some have been frightening, many have been fascinating. Of course, we had Shani on just a couple of weeks ago, and she had several different experiences. One we thought might reflect a normal aircraft, but the others were pretty unusual. And we have another listener, his name is Mike Cleland, who joins us today to talk about things that happened to him, and surprisingly enough, or maybe not so surprising, they happened when he was very young. Some of them did. Right. At least some of the most frightening ones occurred when you were very young, Mike. We want to welcome you to the Paracast Microphones. I know you've been a listener to the show for a while. You have not met me. You've met David already. And we know that was probably the most exciting event of your entire life. If not a little bit uh, traumatic. Traumatic? Are you kidding? Well, I went easy on you, man. Good. Right. You were getting basically about half of what David normally does with newcomers. Phew. And just a qualifier here. Uh, Mike is one of two people who I met at Jeremy Vaney's Culture of Contact event that really made me feel like being there was worth it. Um, and so I just want to tell our audience that having met him, having spoken to him one-on-one, I can tell you that uh, my opinion is that this man's telling the truth. I think it's really important to meet someone, look into their face, and, and get an idea of who they are. And so this is a guy who I believe is credible. You know, could I be wrong? Well, you know, we can, all of us could be wrong about so many things, but... Just FYI, Mike, I think that the stuff that you've written about on our forums, which is what we're going to primarily talk about today, uh, is extremely compelling. And as I said, uh, having met you, having gotten to talk to you a little bit, I feel that you're telling the truth, at least the truth of what you perceive happened to you. Well, that's good to hear because I, because I, uh, whatever, the, only, the little internal battles that I go through in my own head is, is, uh, you know, I feel like I'm just full of doubt and full of questioning. You know, I reread the stuff I wrote and I hear my own voice talking about it, and, and it's very difficult for me to wrap my mind around it. I can I can totally sympathize with the folks that dismiss this stuff outright because you know I recognize the out and out unbelievability of it. Mm-hmm. Exactly, and it's it's hard for people to understand that unless they've been through it themselves. You know, you do get to this point where you say, "All right, look, whether you believe that I'm telling the truth, I was there, I know what happened." And, yeah, and I realized that when we have people on the Paracast, sometimes we take them to task, and what we're basically doing is judging them on their word and on their voice. So, you know, there's really, most of these cases, there is no hard, tangible evidence. Most of this stuff is, is anecdotal. If you're lucky, you have a witness or two that was there with you, if you're lucky. But otherwise, yeah, you talk about this stuff and people go, oh, you know, he's making it up or he's lying or... He's exaggerating, and and the attitude you have to sort of take is, well, I was there. You weren't. So have your opinion. That's fine. Your opinion does not define my reality. I'll tell you what. Let's begin at the event that occurred when you were just 12 years old. 
and it came into our forum under the title Orange Flash and Missing Time. And maybe that begins to summarize it. And so many of the events that happen in the paranormal occur for the first time. The first event is always, it seems, when you are fairly young. And in this case, you were, what, 12 years old? 12 years old, yeah. And I, and that I could I could match up the time of the year exactly because there was a television show that's kind of critical to the story. And that was very easy to look up and figure out the, the one season that it was on the air. Okay, the show was called Kolshak the Night Stalker, and it was a it was a show that I loved as a twelve year old, and it was a kind of a predecessor to the X Files. And Chris Carter even uh, mentions that show as, as his inspiration for um, the X Files. It was it revolved around a reporter trying to solve scary stories about vampires and zombies and things like that. And I expect possibly to some degree maybe it's influencing also that new show which has a similar bent about conspiracy theories and somewhat paranormal events which is called Fringe. But anyway, okay, so this was really a year to put you in the right frame of mind. So what happened to you? I was in junior high school, and in the neighborhood I lived in, and it was the suburbs of Detroit, and it was a very calm, pretty fall evening, just as lovely as it can be. And and my guess is either September or October. And uh, the high school would have football games on Friday night. So as a junior high school student, I would walk over and watch the high school's football games. And uh, I knew I wanted to be home in time to see this television show. And the television show started at exactly 10 o'clock. So I was well aware of the time it started and, and, and knew that I wanted to see this uh, the television show. There was another friend of mine also named Mike. And uh, it's about a half a mile, uh, if you look at the, the map, and you can look it up on Google Earth. Um, it's about a half a mile from my, uh, from my front door to the high school. So we, we walked through the neighborhood to get home and... And there came a certain point when we were, well, maybe about two blocks from my house. And uh, once again, I'll just say it was a calm and lovely evening and clear skies. And then there was a – the only way I can describe it is that there was an orange flash that, that felt like the entire sky lit up uh, this deep, deep, rich orange color. And it just lasted for a short second, just a flash, and then it um, and it went right back to normal. And I remember both me and this other friend, Mike, were, were – it was jarring. It was very strange. And we were very much like, you know, what just happened? And, and I think we went through the little checklist that a 12-year-old could come up with. Was it a meteor? Was it a explosion? Was it, um, you know, was it some sort of crossed electrical wires and, you know, in the, you know, behind that house over there or something? And when we couldn't make sense of it. Mike, let me ask you a question about this. When this happened, did you smell anything weird? I have no recollection at all. So I, can, I can't answer that. Okay. Imagine you're sort of walking forward and you saw this flash... And it was the entire sky. It didn't seem to come like from in front of you or behind you. It was just like from above, correct? I mean, it was only a second long, and my eyes were obviously pointed only in one direction. I can kind of replay the image in my in my head here, and I can clearly see the neighborhood. And this would have been 1970, I think 1974. So, um, you know, we're talking, you know, over 30 years ago now. But uh, it, it felt like the entire sky lit up. You know, as if, you know, God lit, uh, you know, like flipped the light switch for half a second and then shut it right back off. And it was a deep, deep orange. And even to this day, when I look at, um, you know how you look at the coals in the in a in a, a campfire and they glow that deep, deep, true orange? The embers, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and it's got that sort of radiant quality to it. That's, even to this day, I look at this, every time I look at a campfire in that state or, a, you know, the, the coals in the barbecue, I'll say to myself, well, that's the color orange it was. Self-illuminating is what we call that in 3D terminology. Yeah. But that would match it perfectly. It felt like, uh, you know, 
It felt like the whole sky was that color. So did you, like, then stop and turn to your friends and say, like, what was that and talk about it right then and there, or did you keep, did you proceed? No, no, we stopped and talked. Okay. All right. Yeah, so we were both, it was pretty jarring. It was, And I will also add that it was absolutely silent. And that was almost a stranger thing. If it had been accompanied by like the rumble of thunder or something like that, I think we could have we could have, uh, you know, made a little more sense of it. But it wasn't. It was completely silent. Hmm. Okay. So what was his uh, reaction to this? You know, it's going back now thirty years, so I can't give a good answer to that. I just remember we were both kind of confused, and we went through the little. Uh, you know, I remember we talked about a meteor, and that didn't make sense. We couldn't we couldn't make sense of that. We said maybe it was a meteor, but we really didn't even know what that meant. So we just kind of let that you know that that uh, hypothesis fizzle there. So right now, have you been in touch with your friend Mike since this event happened? Well, this would have been junior high school, and we went all the way through high school together, So, and I haven't seen him since then. So, no, I have not been in touch. Okay, but now the pace de resistance, you see the orange light, but that isn't all, folks. What happened um, next? So I walk home, and it's a you know one more block, and I say goodbye to Mike, and I walk up my driveway and walk in the house, and my parents are angry at me. And I'm, I mean, a little kid, and I'm like, well, what are you mad at me for? And it's like, well, they, 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 in no uncertain terms, you know, kind of say, you, you're too young to be out this late. You can't be out this late. And I was like, out this late? It's 9.30. I was, I'm at home in time to see this television show. And then they pointed to the clock, and the television was actually had the 11 o'clock news on it. Um, so the news was on, and, and my perception is it was, it was ending. The television news was ending. So it would have been about 11.30 at night. So, it's difficult to account exactly, but somewhere between an hour and a half and two hours of time was missing. And I'll actually say my, my emotional reaction at that point was completely uh, just I was disappointed that I missed this television show that I wanted to see. I didn't have any associated fear at all. Now, to go back to backtrack a little bit, we're talking about a distance of about a half mile, and depending on the size of street blocks, like 10 blocks, this would take you, what, 15 minutes, a half hour to do this? I'm guessing 15, okay. 20 minutes. Okay, 15, 20 minutes. So you felt that as far as your perception was concerned, it was no more than 15 or 20 minutes from the time you left the football game to the time that you reached home. That would have been an accurate perception, yeah. Hmm. Give or take five minutes. Okay, now... This is Bill Burns from UFO Magazine and UFO Hunters. You know, there are several ways that you can get UFO, UFO magazine. magazine. Yeah, we know, Bill. We know, we know, we know. Just shut up. Just give us one way. Don't tell us you're psychic and, you know, give it 8,000 phone numbers and take 15 minutes of our time where we just want to hear the show. Just tell us how we can get UFO Magazine in one way. Okay, okay. Just go to www.ufomag.com. Subscribe online. You happy? Yeah, was that so hard? Actually, harder than you know. Hi, this is Timothy Green Beckley, otherwise known as Mr. UFO, reporting live for the Conspiracy Journal. And we have a special offer to the listeners of the Paracast. Want to receive our publications for free? Conspiracy Journal and Bizarre Bizarre sent to you via snail mail. And all you have to do is email me at MrUFO at WebTV.net. That's MRUFO at WebTV.net. And we'll send you two of the most exciting publications. But we do need your actual address because these are physical publications. And you'll enjoy all the latest articles by some of the leading researchers in the field, as well as up-to-date information on the latest book and videos and it's all for free or drop us a line mr ufo at webtv.net 
We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and David. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. I will tell our listeners we're talking to Mike Cleland. He's a listener to the Paracast. And now we're seeing that something really weird happened to him at the age of 12 in Michigan. An orange flash followed by missing time. Okay, did your parents believe you at all when you said, hey, no, how could this happen? You know, I... I can't remember at all whether they believe me or not, and and I my I doubt I would even have mentioned like the orange flash at all. I think my was I was probably just genuinely perplexed, uh, and uh, you know, and I'm also also sort of the youngest kid in the house, so I was kind of uh, you know the goofy kid as it were. So um, you know, they had a kind of a way of like just rolling their eyes at a lot of what I said. So now, what about subsequent conversations with your friend about this, Mike? I mean, okay, the only conversation we ever had. So the the football games take place on Friday night, mm-hmm. and then the next Monday at my junior high school, I remember being in the cafeteria with a group of friends, and I definitely remember this other friend, Mike. We were all there together sitting around a table in the cafeteria, and I said something to the effect of, you know, we had this really strange thing happen to us on Friday night. Yeah, it was really weird. I don't know what it was. And then Mike said, without any prompting from me, he said, yeah, it was a UFO with lights and everything. Hmm. And the very first thing that went through my mind when he said that was, well, I didn't see any lights. I didn't see any UFO. And the, and I actually thought to myself, it's like, well, here's a perfect example how these stories get blown out of proportion because he just made this up as far as I was concerned. And then I never brought it up with him again, and he never brought it up with me again. Now, I don't remember anyone at the at the uh, the sort of Monday morning or sort of the Monday cafeteria event, you know, even asking us about it. He just said that, and the whole subject got uh, dropped. A question our listeners, I think would probably want to ask now, and the people in the forums, did you have any strange dreams about this event, about UFOs, about anything at all that was odd in the days following this? No, not that I recall. Okay. Now, Mike, in the forums, you put up a... Well, there's a bunch of stuff you've written about, and it's all really fascinating. Early on in the thread about the orange flash and missing time, you tell... uh, what is perhaps even a wilder story, wilder as in more interesting in many ways, about this thing that happened when you were at your friend Kenny's house. And this, I guess, takes place before the Flash story. Could you tell us about this episode? So this is also um, the same neighborhood. Actually, Kenny moved uh, to a different neighborhood, so I remember I had to have my parents drive me to his house, and we had a sleepover. And Kenny was a a super close friend of mine all through elementary school, and and this would have been about sixth grade. I can't – it'd take me a little while to figure out how old I must have been, maybe 11 or 12. Um, And we were sitting in his house. It was nighttime. And one of the things that we did a lot as uh, as friends is we would draw a lot. I work as a professional illustrator even to this day, and I was and, and Kenny and I would draw. That was what we did. We always had paper and pencils out. And so we were upstairs in his uh, in upstairs of his house, and we were in a room, and the room was dark. I remember that, and I think it was either me or Kenny that pointed to the window, and we said, "Look at that!" 
and we ran to the window, and I remember our faces were nice and close to the window, so it wouldn't have been anything reflecting behind us. Mm-hmm. Um, and we watched for maybe a full minute, maybe 30 seconds. We saw something that was basically shaped like a uh, coffee can with a pencil sticking out the top. And it was uh, rotating in a very unusual way. It was um, it uh, was rotating in a way that I can only say was extremely controlled and almost strangely too slow. Um, it obviously wasn't a helicopter. We had a very clear view of it. Uh, it was lit with lights around the edges of it, it seemed. And uh, and this thing was descending very slowly uh, at, an, at a curious angle, maybe a 40-degree angle. We watched it for a little while, and I remember actually seeing what looked like the running lights to an airplane flying towards it, you know, from, from maybe from, uh, from, from right to left. I'm just uh, wondering about the shape because on the forums there is, uh, I guess, an illustration that you did at the time. Uh, you yes. This. And when you say a coffee can, I mean, the, the illustration that you did has this thing with a tapered top on it. And then what also looks like almost a rounded bottom. It sounds a little different than when you say it's, when you say it's a coffee can. I just want to have kind of a clear visual of it. It's interesting because I'm picturing it in my head right now, and I'm picturing it as a coffee can, and I know the illustration you're talking about. What happened is Kenny and I – so I'll go get back to this right. So we watched this thing for maybe 30 seconds. There's a uh, – when the, when the little airplane-looking thing that's only a little flashing dot in the sky, when that thing touches, when those things connect to the coffee can-shaped thing, the coffee can-shaped thing disappears. It just blinks out. It's gone. And then we watched that small little uh, running light uh, fly away. It just, in f- for as far as my eyes were concerned, that was nothing more than an airplane in the sky. If I had seen that little that little blinking light, I would have thought nothing of it in the night sky. Okay, so let's look at the blinking light. This is below the craft, or what? Uh, kind of swooping in, uh, maybe from left to right. Well, it looks like in the illustration. The way an airplane would look right in the left. sky. I'm gonna get on my computer here and just look at the illustration myself. So okay, as you look up the illustration again, and this is something that you did when you were around 11 or 12 years old. So this was your budding talent as an illustrator. We're seeing it evidenced here. And yes, you're seeing my handiwork. Yes. Okay. Did it make any noise at all? Uh, not that I know of. We were in a house looking through a window, so okay. there was no noise associated with this. Okay. Because I was wondering. When I first looked at it, I said, you know, maybe he just saw a helicopter. You know. Uh, we thought about that too. And it definitely was not a helicopter. Okay. Yeah, Gene, the illustration looks nothing like a helicopter. No, it doesn't. But I was thinking in terms of only no, the right. If you're looking at a helicopter head-on, so you can't see the tail rotor, maybe a little bit like a helicopter. That's right. That's what I was thinking of. But it definitely was not a helicopter. And yes, okay. it does come in. It comes in from the right and then swoops off to the left. You can see I drew little numbers there, counting out the, the little flashes. And it seemed to touch the bottom. So anyway, so after this thing disappears, uh, Kenny and I are, you know, shocked. I mean, it's a weird feeling. It's like, it's kind of like, you know, makes the hairs on the back of your neck, uh, you know, stand up. Kind of this haunted, amazing, like, it, the sensation of like, you know, I'm witnessing something from beyond my normal set of perceptions. This is, this is freaking way out there. And both Kenny and I were just like, wow, that was over the top. And uh, so the first thing, and I don't remember if it was Kenny or me, it was probably me that said it. I said, let's not talk about it. Let's run downstairs where there's paper and pencil all over the kitchen table, and let's draw it right now. So that's what we did. And this drawing here is the drawing I did. And uh, I have the paper drawing in what uh, I drew it initially as a coffee can. And I remember Kenny saying, like, no, I think it was a little more beveled at the edges. 
And then I said, oh, you're right. It was a little more beveled at the edges. And I took an eraser and kind of cleaned up those edges. So that's probably more the rounded shape you're seeing there. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Now, it's All interesting right. here that you got to talk to Kenny years later after this. I looked him up on, uh, on uh, you know, the Internet's an amazing thing. It took me about three minutes to find his – actually, the number I found was his parents' phone number. And I always got along really well with his parents. So um, – I dialed the phone up, and, and Kenny's mom answered, and I said hi to her, and we chatted for a little bit. It was very funny. The very first thing she said when I picked up the phone, I said, hi, this is Mike Clellan. I was just wondering if, you, if you know, is this, a, is this a house where I can get a hold of Kenny? And she said, Mike Clellan, and she laughed, and she said, you know, Kenny just talked about you the other day. This is like ESP, and we both laughed at that. And then she gave me Kenny's number. And I called Kenny up, and, and I had not talked to him for probably 33 years or something like that. So, And then it was a funny thing. It was a funny thing to, like, kind of, like, you know, how do you beat around the bush? How do you how do you bring it up? And I said, you know, listen, here's something that i got to ask you about is we saw this UFO thing, or we saw something out a window when you're from your house in the town you lived in. And, uh, and actually, he did not remember it. He totally came up as a blank. I talked to him later on email, and he said that his mother – remembered the night we came downstairs and threw it on the on the kitchen table. But he had forgotten so, about it. He had forgotten completely about it, but his mother seemed to remember that we, we ran downstairs and drew this thing on from hmm. uh, on the kitchen table. Okay, here's a question for you, Mike. You might hate me for this later, but that room that you guys were hanging out in, was there a TV in that room? No, there definitely was not. All right, so there's no chance that you were like, this was some kind of a distorted memory, that you were watching TV, something weird happened. I mean, you remember going to the window. You remember looking at this thing out the window, right? Yep, I remember the room was dark. I remember his sister's room was right next door, and that was lit very brightly. And I remember that was kind of how the room was lit, because for some reason that room was dark. We just walked in for a second, and uh, the room was mostly lit from from the hallway and from his sister's room across the hall. Who was at the house other than you and Kenny? Who was there at the time this happened? He had a big family, so there were lots of people there. I think his, he had younger sisters, so they were there, and then he had a younger brother, and he was there. So there's probably, uh, you know, upwards of seven people in the house. Do you have any recollections of saying, hey, look at this. Look what we see through the window here. No, I think it was just me and him. It was definitely just me and him. And I think our jaws were, we were kind of like in a, in an aghast moment of like, you know, silenced uh, with our jaws, you know, on the floor pretty much. Mm-hmm. Any recollection of telling anyone about it after it happened? A little bit. I remember telling Kenny's mom, and I remember she kind of giggled and kind of laughed and kind of said, "Oh, that's nice." And that was that's as much of a perception as I have. So that's the typical any, motherly kind of phrase, you yes, know. Yes, and she was a very sweet, typical mother. So, right, indulging the crazy kids who see crazy things in the sky. Sure. All right. So you have these experiences. You're young. Um, maybe then you go for a number of years, and perhaps you're not dwelling on them. And then stuff starts to ramp up again in a weird way. So now let's cut to the future. You're older. And there is an episode that you write about on the forums that you say happened either in January or February of 1993. Let's talk about that now. Because that starts to definitely ramp up the weirdness. You know, as I tell the story, like, I I truly don't trust this story. I don't trust it in my own mind. I feel like if someone wanted to uh, tell me that it was uh, some sort of sleep-induced uh, dream state, I would agree with them completely, but I'll, I'll just tell the story anyway. I was living alone in a home in Maine, and I'll, I'll preface this by saying I was quite depressed at the time. 
I had been through a, a, a breakup and I was engaged to be married and it was a, it was a dark, depressing time of my life. And I'm prefacing that because, because that's, I can totally write this off. My life was filled with stresses and, uh, and maybe that's what I was experiencing, some sort of stress induced, you know, uh, aberration of a memory. So there's a, uh, I lived in a rural area out in the woods and, uh, if the, the way my bed was positioned, it was right up against this window and that window was looked out on the driveway and we had a motion you know, I actually lived with my fiance there for a while. She wasn't there during this event. Um, we had a motion detector light on the, the, uh, above the driveway. And I remember waking up and there was a bright light filling the room. And my first thought was it was the light in the driveway was on. So I sat up in bed and I have a small illustration of this posted. I sat up in bed and I looked out the window and I remember seeing quite clearly five spindly gray aliens with the big bald heads and the big black eyes uh, standing outside my window uh, a little bit off to the left. And behind them was uh, something was illuminating the whole thing very brightly, very strange and very bright, kind of flooded the room with, with light through the window. And then my initial reaction was, huh, uh, this is intense. I'm just going to put my head down and go to sleep. Okay, so basically you thought you were dreaming at this point. I have no idea what I thought in the moment. Um, I definitely know that the next morning when I tried to make sense of that memory, I just I just blew it off thinking like, oh, my God, I'm so stressed out. I'm so bummed out. And my life is, you know, it, it, my life has come to this where I'm just it's it's making me, you know, hallucinate and see these these odd events. Now, Mike, here's a question, though. So this is like 1993, early 93. At this point, what had been your exposure to the mass market media around this topic? I mean, in talking to you at Jeremy's events, obviously you're, you're very knowledgeable about this stuff at this point. Um, you definitely have, seem to have read a lot of material about this uh, about this topic. But at that time, how prominent was the topic in your mind? I will be quite honest, and the, to the topic was absolutely uh, flooding my mind. I was reading constantly in sort of a compulsive way about the subject. Quite honestly, that night when I went to bed, I I, uh, I was reading the book by um, Bud Hopkins called uh, Intruders. So that was on my that was probably right there on the bed right next to me. All right. So maybe those that fact and those elements sort of contribute to your idea. Maybe this is a an off map. You know that this maybe didn't reflect um, a reality that you call normal reality. But you know that of course brings up a whole other issue in that. Um, one of the things that seems to be a constant element is that when these things go on, there is this sort of disassociation with what we would call a normal waking state. Talk, can you talk a little bit to that? That was something that, that struck me at the time. It did feel different. It felt, I don't know how else to say it, except that, that it felt like I was peering, I was in another reality somehow, or I was in another state of consciousness, I can easily dismiss that and say, you know, like, oh, it was a dream state, or oh, I was just sleepy, or, you know, it was just a funny sleepy state. And uh, and I don't quite know how to make sense of this. I'm going to jump ahead, and I had a dream recently, this is within the last few months, and uh, the dream was, and this is a little bit funny, uh, I was at my brother's house, and my brother lives in Michigan, and uh, and he kind of said, in the dream, he said to me, oh, you got to check this out, look what I got in the garage. And I'm like, what are you talking about? So we go in the garage, and in the garage, he has like this kind of partially dissembled uh, flying saucer 
uh, with a tarp over it. And he said, yeah, like, and my brother in the dream said, yeah, you know, I know this guy who works for the government. He had this thing and he needed to get his hands off it. So I figured I'd store it in the garage for a while. And I was totally fanciful and, and I was fascinated. And my, but one of the things my brother said was, he said, now, don't get too close to it, because if you get close to it, it distorts your, your sense of perception. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he said, well, just the closer you get to it, it distorts reality. So I went ahead and walked close to this thing. It looked like a, you know, like a small flying saucer the size of a, of a van or something. And uh, as I got closer to it, true enough, this, this, I had a palpable distortion of reality. And it was kind of this strangely silent kind of, uh, you know, head in the pressurized fishbowl kind of feeling. And, uh, and it was very real and very palpable. And then I stepped back. And when I woke up that morning, the first thing I thought about was like that feeling, that strange fishbowl feeling uh, exactly matched my, you know, now long ago memory of this event in Maine. Whoa. Before we ask any more questions. Okay, neighbors, did you know that food will make your future fearless? You know, we're going to have runaway inflation with all of these bailouts. And if you don't understand why, you'd better check it out or your life may depend on it. Before runaway inflation occurs, smart people are converting their paper money into gold and now gold into food. We've seen runaway inflation in other countries. The only way to survive is to buy things and stuff that we'll need later while the money and gold still have value. When a truckload of cash or several pounds of gold won't buy a loaf of bread, the only answer is to already have your own bread. Folks don't realize that with the worldwide famine and food shortages, food is about to become so precious that will actually establish the value of gold until there is no food left at any price. Food will make your future fearless. Call 800-715-4380 or go on the web to efoodsdirect.com. Call 800-715-4380 or efoodsdirect.com. Airy Radio, opening the door to the unknown. Download episodes of Airy Radio directly from iTunes or visit their website at www.eerieradio.com. Hey, this is Jeff Ritzman. You're listening to David Biedney and Gene Steinberg on The Paracast. And just between you and me, I think these guys are a cult, so keep your eye on them. Mike Clellan joins us on the PowerCast. He's one of our listeners. He is certainly interested in UFOs, and he's had some interesting encounters, one of which goes back to 1993, where it could have been a dream, and then you had the dream much more recently. And that one sounds to me like you think it was just a dream and nothing else, too, right? I was just a dream. My brother does not have a UFO in his garage. <laughs> At least not that he tells you. <laughs> I feel pretty confident saying that, so... So, in this thread, Mike, you then have an interesting illustration where you talk about this bright light that you saw in the background, and you kind of refine the visualization of, of what it looked like to you, and it's kind of odd. Talk about that a little bit, if you will. Okay, well, let me, before I talk about that, there was a movie right. uh, of Communion, which was kind of a bad movie, where Christopher Walken played Whitley Strieber, and uh, there's an event in the movie where Whitley, the character of Whitley, played by Christopher Walken, walks uh, through a nighttime scene, and he walks to what we perceive as a craft in the woods. And at the time, I was... Um, 
doing working on TV commercials, so I was on uh, film sets a lot. So I had a kind of a good working knowledge of what a big movie light would look like. And then in the movie itself, it's not really hidden in a way. It's a kind of a very simple special effect, and he's actually just walking into a great big giant movie light. They expose the thing in some sort of way that makes it look, uh, you know, kind of spooky and eerie. And I remember looking at the light that was in the yard in Maine, and I thought to myself, that's a movie light. And I guess I saw it as a movie light. And I even thought to myself, in just those few seconds that I saw it, I thought to myself, and I remember this quite clearly, I said to myself, well, that's a simple way to do a special effect. Mm. Um, and it was it was paralleling uh, the, the events or, or the visual of the movie. And the movie I had probably seen, you know, maybe a year before this event. Okay. Something just kind of occurred to me. As we're talking about this, we have the things that happened to you when you were 11 or 12. And then we go to 1993, where you have this particular sighting or dream of several of the spindly UFO gray-type aliens. During that period, obviously you were interested in UFOs. Where did you pick up the interest? Was it from your original encounters as a preteen or somewhere in the interim? Well, this would have been the 1970s, and I was actually at the perfect age for, um, you know, to go see um, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. I must have been, you know, 15 or so when that movie came out, 15, 16. And that was absolutely the perfect age to get, you know, sort of enthralled by the subject. Uh, there was a television show on at the time called In Search Of that had Leonard Moy doing the, the uh, hosting, and it was I just loved that show. I remember, yes. And I, and I also remember as a little kid in elementary school, the first big fat book I ever read, you know, like a, like a mass market paperback, was uh, a book called Flying Saucers, Serious Business by Frank Edwards. And I don't think I still have it, but I remember I just, I thought that book was fascinating. And I, in uh, that book has lots and lots of, oh, just uh, very um, good accounts of, of, you know, witness accounts and some Air Force accounts. So I thought that book was fascinating as a little, as an elementary school student. And then I guess it must have been about 19... 90 or 91, I, I picked up, and it might have just off a little, uh, you know, rack at the bookstore. I picked up a simple little small uh, book on um, UFOs, and I remember being utterly fascinated by it. And in a way that was, was I just thought it was the most interesting, fascinating thing I'd, you know, I had read in a long time. And then from that point on, I had been, you know, collecting books on the subject and reading uh, books on the subject. I'm sitting in my house here, and I'm probably within the, within, the bookshelves in the room here have probably got well over 100 books on the subject. So how do you then delineate in your own mind, Mike, between externally sourced experiences and mental regurgitations of stuff you've read? I mean, how do you... And this is, I think, for a lot of people into this topic, this is a, this is a key question, especially when you then fold in the dream states. It seemed... I mean, you know, one of the things that I realized at the Culture of Contact event, I met people who almost sound like they believe dreams are more real than reality, which which is an interesting, I think a little confusing of a notion. So how do you deal with this in your own mind? Because obviously, like I said, you seem very knowledgeable about the topic, but I have to tell you, even though I get sent books about this all the time, Mike, um, you know, I, don't, I definitely don't have 100 books on the UFO topic, but I'm wondering, you know, at what point do you start to maybe not trust your own memories when you have all of this overlap going on, and plus the fact, like, at, at the Culture of Contact event, um, you know, there are people that think that dreams are more real than reality, which to me is a, is a very strange idea. So in, in your own thinking about this topic and discussing with other people, and 
know, spending time ruminating on it, how do you uh, how do you differentiate between things that happen to you and then externally sourced events that might contaminate your own memories? Well, I mean, you're you're talking about the key question of this whole event for me, or this whole series of events for me, because I I I, uh, I wallow in that insecurity of exactly what you're saying. I I totally recognize that my the, you know the file cabinets in my head are just brimming with with uh, with stories that I've read over the years, and uh, and I guess I've been very cautious to to be skeptical of my own experiences and to 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 not stray. From them, to not not embellish them in any way. I've been very. I work really hard not to try to make more out of them than, than might be there. Just just, and and to be quite honest, like as far as believing this stuff, I of my own experience, like that's a tough one for me to say. Like I, I've just told you a couple experiences, and I hear the words coming out of my mouth, and I don't really believe them. Um, I have to say that I know quite distinctly that I actually have these memories, and some of them are quite clear. And I, and I feel very confident saying that I have these memories. But in a strange way, you know, I'm talking about something that for all intents and purposes in our, in our culture is the stuff of fantasy. And, and I don't truly believe my own story. But now, at the same time, uh, on the Paracast forums, there is an image that might be the wackiest image on our entire site. This is not my face, by the way. No, that's a scary, not wacky image. Let's, let's, let's define these things very clearly. But, uh, no, Mike, you, you put an image up of the inside of your nose. It's a lovely nose. Thank but, you. Uh, that's quite right. See, uh, I have a Jewish nose, big Jewish nose. Oh, forget it. That's called a schnoz. Again, <laughs> technically accurate, please. Yeah, that's a schnoz. You can use that to, you know, cut through the London fog. And we won't go there. Anyway, so, Mike, there's this photo of your nose, and there's this really bizarre scar right, right coming out of your nostril. And, and tell us a little bit about this and, and when did this happen? I'm sitting in front of my computer and I just pulled the image up and, and sure enough, it is a weird image of my, of my nose. I, and I'm unshaven and, and uh, my face looks oily and it's all shiny, obviously. I was, uh, but, um, so people say that we on the PowerCast are nosy. Now they have the proof of that allegation. Good. So, so um, what's the deal with this? Okay, I, this, I can't date this one exactly. I'm going to say probably around 2000, year 2000. I, uh, I, I remember having, oh, a little irritation right there, right there in my nostril. And, uh, and I remember looking in the mirror and it was kind of red and irritated. And I thought for sure, it's like, oh, this is like something, there's like a, uh, you know, what I thought to myself was an ingrown hair here. And little by little, after a few days, it kind of went, you know, the, the irritation part went away. And I was left with this small little scar. I have no memory at all associated with how I got the scar. I do not know how this thing happened. As far as I'm concerned, there was just some sort of uh, hair that got. Uh, this is delightful to talk about in front of the world here, but I, you know, I had some sort of. Yeah, I had some sort of uh, ingrown hair at the edge of my nostril, and uh, and maybe I picked at it or something like that. It got a little infected or something like that, and it left a little scar. So later on, and I talk about this in the, and try to write this as clearly as I could in the forum. There was a, I had a girlfriend, and she was uh, close enough to kind of look up my nose and kind of said, like, what happened there? And I, I immediately kind of felt my heart sink a little bit, and I said, um, that was an ingrown hair. And she uh, kind of, you know, uh, immediately replied, like, no, it's not. And I remember I had this kind of frightened, sinking feeling when she said, no, it's not with such, such uh, you know, so definitively. Um, I mean, you can describe this, the little scar. It's not 
any bigger than what you can see. It doesn't seem to go up into the shadow of the nostril there. It's probably just about what you see there. And I mean, you sat across from me at the culture of contact. I doubt you would have noticed it. In, you know. I wasn't looking up your nose, man. Oh, no, I just I, so it only it's, does that on Thursdays. Okay. So okay. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to clarify that, of course. But I'm looking at it myself, and I said, first of all, I thought, gee, maybe he just did something with a blade accidentally. He's shaving, and you went a little too high, and you clipped the side of your nose or something. Or, or you picked your nose with a, with a long you know, fingernail. Or a razor blade. That's why I went into the razor blade, yeah. No, I don't have any memory of, of any injury with a razor blade or anything like that. So. Is there still a scar there now? That picture was taken about a month ago. Yeah, I could, I could, oh, I could show you. Oh, really? No, wait, this is from 1980? No, actually, probably it was... No, no, this is, this is it's like it's right now. It looks like this right now. So this is now eight years ago. Okay, no, this, 2000. I'm getting my decades wrong. So this is taken. In, this happened in 2000, but this photo is only a month old, or maybe even less than that. Here, I'll look at the date of it. Huh. Yeah, the, the, as he so searches the date. Yeah, so, Fate Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You are about to enter another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a sinister land of secret rites, passwords, initiations, and handshakes where the truth remains hidden and history is controlled by an elite group of mysterious men. Imagine, if you will, that I'm holding a book in my hands that explains this secret history and that the name of this book is Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Here is described centuries of dark dealing, lies, murder, mayhem, and cover-ups in the pursuit of unimaginable money and power. My name is Brad Steiger, and the stories you are about to read may have actually happened at the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. We have one more segment on the show with Mike Cleland, who has had a lot of unusual experiences that sound they could be partly dreamy related, although he has an incident of missing time, as you heard earlier in the show. And now we're looking at the appearance of a strange scar on his nose. This is the case of the scar on the nose. Well, but so Mike, here's the thing. Okay, so you ever had a doctor look at this recently and tell you what they think it might be? You know, I've talked about that, and I've actually gone into the doctor's office on some other unrelated thing, thinking I wanted to have him look at it, and I just couldn't bring myself to say it. I just, it just seems to me that that I can, I can very easily dismiss this thing as something else. Uh, it's funny you're talking on the on the uh, 
you know, on a, on a UFO related podcast right now about this thing. And so I can, I, I recognize the implications of what it might be, but, um, you know, you sit in, you know, I walk away from the, you know, this, this conversation and, and I would be able to dismiss it completely as just a, a, a ingrown hair scar. But I'm also reading on the forums and by the way, folks, it's a forum dot the com where you can see this and there is a thread okay on the subject in our personal experiences forum called orange flash and missing time where he recounts his experiences but you also had a conference or a conversation with ann and whitley streber that would have been over i met whitley streber at a ufo conference very briefly he was very nice and, and uh, very cordial and I ended up sitting with them, him and his wife, for a little bit. Uh, but that conversation was back and forth on a, uh, on a, like a chat room thing that they do on the Whitley Streeper site. And that, that conversation was just a little back and forth where they were talking about, uh, you know, how to go about looking, you know, have a doctor look at it and such like that. So I don't, I don't think there's much to that conversation. I just posted it up there. I just thought it was relevant to this page. Yeah. As far as an ingrown hair scar, uh, I don't know, Mike, after eight years, I think that would not, be there anymore. I don't think that I have to uh, agree with your uh, ex-girlfriend. That's no moon. That's uh, it's not an ingrown hair. It doesn't look like it. I'm not a medical professional, but eight years and that scar looks like it was recent. It really does. Yeah, yeah I don't know. I don't know. And I, I've, to be quite honest, I've tried to like, you know, I don't want to talk about putting my finger up my nose or anything like that onto the world here, but I have like felt around in there and there's nothing to feel and there's no, I don't have any associated pain or any associated anything with it. So yeah, this one is, this one is a genuine curiosity to me. I can't. And there's can't no lump that. or anything like that. Something where you can feel the scar and there's a lump beneath it or something like that, because obviously the next thing that may occur to people is implant, but you don't feel that there's anything weird stuck in your nose. You know, it might be worth worth getting an X-ray, Mike. I've thought about it, and, and uh, maybe someday. Well, the worst that can happen is that there's something there, but you know, all likelihood there very probably is nothing there. But I, I, you know, I think you might want to think about that. I'll tell you how to run your life, but you know, just just to get it out of your mind, you know. Another question that might occur to us, of course, is: Have you ever thought? of undergoing hypnotic regression with regard to the missing time or anything else. And again, you know, that raises so many other problems, of course, once you go into hypnotic regression. Does that process itself create false memories of something that may or may not have happened? Well, I'll, I have gone under hypnotic regression. I sat with Bud Hopkins, and he hypnotized me now about a year ago and talked a lot about this event, um, the event with the... Uh, or the events we've been talking about here on the, you know, during our discussion, I have to say that I don't think I went under completely. A few things came up, mostly that I could very clearly and vividly uh, see my old neighborhood as I was walking home that night after the football game, and then it just felt like I got kind of stuck and nothing else, nothing really came of it. Uh, it was very interesting because Bud, I kind of apologized afterwards. I said, you know, nothing really came of this. So, you know, sorry I didn't get under, and, and he said, oh no, no, you actually, you know. He said you were, he, this is what he said. He went through a bunch of rigmarole as far as trying to get me past a certain point. Basically what happened is I got to that point on the sidewalk. You know, he's like, okay, you're walking down the street, you're in your neighborhood. And I'm like, okay, I'm walking down the street, I'm in the neighborhood. Okay, you get to the spot where the event happened and what happens? And basically I say, nothing. It looks like 
it looks like there I am on the sidewalk with my friend, and it's, for all intents and purposes, someone hit the pause button on the VCR. We are frozen. Nothing's happening. And he's like, okay, let's, uh, and he went through all kinds of rigmarole to try to get me to, uh, to visualize it. He said, okay, let's pretend like you're watching it on TV, or let's pretend like you're, you're watching actors on a stage, or let's pretend you're like watch, watch, watching it from above. And I couldn't get past it. And okay, it, it so this stopping point, is this at a point where it is probably just before you saw the orange light in the sky? Pretty much exactly at the spot. And okay. I can pinpoint uh, that spot exactly. I know right where it was on the sidewalk in my own neighborhood. Okay, so just at that point, everything stops, and there's no way for him to move past that as to what you might have remembered then. Yeah, and Bud's afterwards, Bud is a very kind and sweet guy, and he kind of laughed, and he kind of patted me on the back, and he said, listen, I've been doing this for a long time, and I've seen some people are blocked, and you are blocked. So, In subsequent research and reading about the topic, Mike, have you ever come across other accounts that mirror the flash of orange light and lost time? No, the color orange shows up periodically when people describe uh, like a glowing craft, but never... My memory is of the sky lighting up orange, as if you know, as if God flipped the light switch on for just a second. Huh. So I've never, I've never run across anything uh, that, that matches it. That particular scar. Have you ever found anybody else reporting a scar like that in that same location or general area? No. I was wondering here, as we consider this, you've listed this group of experiences that you've had in our forms. Anything else you haven't mentioned? Maybe something else happened and maybe you didn't think it was important enough or you didn't have time to set it down? Well, I'll let, I'll let um, David field this a little bit. We did have a talk and there's there's one event that I, I'm going to choose not to talk about just because it's rather intimate and I did have a uh, another witness and the witness remembers it exactly as I do. And there's very little to it, except it was strange. And David, I think you know what I'm talking about. I know exactly what you're talking about. We'll and, respect uh, your expression. Sure. And there, there are some obvious reasons why Mike wouldn't want to talk about it. But it's another one of those things where there is this uh, shared disruption, weirdness. It's like, well, what just happened? And um, when Mike, when you told me about it, it, it had that feeling to me of some of what I've been through. Not, not the same context, but sort of this thing where something happens you go what was that and it doesn't fit in with normal experience it does it doesn't feel right and when you described it to me i got i had the same kind of reaction that oh i know what that feeling is i think anybody who's gone who's gone through any of this kind of stuff they know exactly what i'm talking about right now uh, it's it's a feeling they've had and i think in one episode where i talked about one of my personal experiences i described it as this kind of disconnect between what your senses tell you and what uh, your brain can like deal with. This is just this moment, this disruption of the sort of the the current of reality, where you're like, "Whoa, what was that?" And and I guess am I am I doing it justice there, Mike? Um, oh, very much so, very much so. And yeah. and um, and one of the things that was also. I don't want to say telling about this event, and this is very cryptic for the folks that are listening, and I apologize, but I'm just, it would be very uncomfortable for me to talk about it. But the person that it occurred with, happened with, we didn't talk about it. Her and I didn't talk about it for probably five years. I mean, more than that, five or six years. And uh, I called her up on the phone after discussing it with, uh, with someone and sort of writing down some key, key details. And we had never mentioned it since the event happened and I called her up on the phone I hadn't talked to her for a while and, and I just got right to the point and I said listen you remember the thing that happened she said yes 
and uh, and then she retold the story, and it matched exactly. And I went, I mean, strangely exactly. It matched almost word for word of what I said. That more than anything, in my whole set of experiences, uh, made my heart sink. I was in New York City. I was working with Bud Hopkins a little bit at the time, and I the next day I sat down with Bud and I told him exactly the story that happened, and which is very strange. And he, I said basically to him, have you ever heard this before? And the look on his face, he kind of rolled his eyes like, you know, like, whoa, buddy, have I heard that one before? Yeah, that one shows up. Um, And I've never read about it. I've never heard about it before or since. And then Bud went on to retell a handful of stories that exactly mimic that same story. Without going into detail, and we respect the fact that this is not something that you want to tell on the show, has anyone in your family other than you had any strange experiences that you've heard about? No. Okay. Not that I know of. It seems like it's just me. Mm-hmm. Now, this may mean nothing, but we always hear about it. Can you tell us a little bit about your ancestral background, where your family came from, things like that, that may be... My dad uh, sure. is a first-generation American. His family's from Scotland. And my mom was born in Denmark, so she moved over to America probably in late to mid-30s. And uh, so I'm a first, I technically am a first-generation American. And my dad uh, was, was born in Canada and was from Scottish parents, and they were born in Scotland. So Scottish and Danish, 50-50. Okay, just wondering. Now, have you run into people amongst your acquaintance who may have had unusual experiences? In other words, we you know, have this kind of small reality where... You meet other people only because of your interest in it. Have you encountered other people in your neighborhood or anywhere else that you've lived that had things happen to them that they couldn't explain? Um, well, as I've gotten into this and as I've been sort of like taking it on, I've actually in the last year or so sort of made an effort to reach out and talk to folks. Uh, and uh, so it seems that these people are coming out of the woodwork, you know, like I'll tell a friend some of my experiences and then he'll say, oh, you got to talk to my next door neighbor. So I'll walk out of his house and knock on the neighbor's door and, and we chatted. And, and after hearing his story, it sure sounds like him and his wife have had a series of abduction events. And I've had a that's happened to me a few times just out of the blue. You know, people say like, oh, here's this story. And then they, they tell me the story and it sure has the, the flavor of uh, of of some sort of. You know, contact the event. You sort of wonder just how many people out there have had things weird happen to them. I think the number is supposed to be, according to surveys, in the many millions. Okay. And I've heard that number. I don't know how to make sense of that number at all. I think that's that's people are that's that's fancy guessing. I think, and I don't know if we can actually come up with any number. What I will say is that you know I'm so skeptical of my own story, and if I, you know, like it feels like if I wrote this out and it took a couple pages to write it out, um, I just barely can can trust these memories and if i if like someone had erased maybe just one or two sentences out of out of a written report you know and, and if i didn't have those memories of those one or two sentences i wouldn't be here right now talking about this uh-huh. um i feel like i'm just on the edge of remembering this stuff and, and trusting it i think that uh, really adds to your legitimacy mike because like people who i think have probably had legitimate experience you don't have any pat answers here you um you don't come to any conclusions from any of this. You're as confused coming out of it as you might have been going in. And I think, personally, that is a sign to me of uh, real experiences. I think when we hear about people who say, this is what happened and this is what, you know, the Jim Sparks of the world go down through this laundry list of stuff that they've memorized, that, uh, to me, makes those accounts not very credible. Listening to what you're talking about, where... There's this haziness to it, and I, and I totally relate to that. I understand how you feel, because I've been through that myself. 
there is something about it that it rings true to me, and it's almost as if you're not supposed to remember this stuff clearly. It's it's as if you're supposed to question it, and therefore sort of deprioritize it in your mind. I think that adds to the credibility of what you're saying. And I'll jump ahead to my own life right now, as far as what you're saying, because I that you're articulating exactly what I feel deep in my core. I'm 46 years old right now, and I've in the last couple of years, in a way that that um that I can't really explain. In the last couple of years, I've, in essence, come out of the closet. I've started to talk about this. I've been using my real name. I've been uh, sharing it with, with friends. I've had actually good responses. Uh, no one seems to treat me, you know, as a, as a, as a nut job, and that's actually a deep concern of mine. Um, and so within the last, like, two and a half years or so, it feels like I've been compelled to come out of the closet. And, and, oh, uh, that's just so weird because that exactly mirrors my reality. But exactly. Okay, I'm going to ask you some questions now. All right. uh, Unfortunately, we only have about four minutes left, so ask, okay, I'll, ask I'll be questions. Quick. Short questions, two words apiece. Okay, any history of depression in your life? Yeah. Okay, here, I'm going to jump. We talked about this a little bit at the uh, at the culture conference, so right. I knew how that was going to come out. I'm going to jump to, um, there was a fellow I met at the culture conference. He had made a documentary, I think it was called The Hidden Hand. Did you see it? No, I did not see Okay, it. I sat with him afterwards, and later I went out with him and Jeremy, and we, we ate at a little uh, Greek diner in the East Village and chatted a bunch. He's 47 years old, has a history of contact events, has a history of depression. He's come out of the closet about two years ago, and he's talking about this stuff now. So there's a funny little pattern that I've been seeing, and maybe I'm just, you know, like insecure for some reason and just searching for these patterns and kind of trying to latch onto any, right. anything that might not, you know, really be a true pattern. But I sure feel like I've met a handful of people that exactly match, you know, my life events. Now, were they all in a similar age bracket? Because you and David are, what, about a year apart? No, we're exactly yeah. the same age. Oh, you're exactly the same age. Okay. Yeah, and this fellow is 47, so he's about a year apart. One year older than us, right. There is one thing I'm, I'm going to amend that, though. Mike, you know, in the first Gulf War, when uh, Norman Schwarzkopf was asked about submarine presence in the Mediterranean, he looked at the person asking the question, and he said, submarines? We don't talk about submarines. So when you just ran through that list, you brought up the word abduction, to which I respond, abductions? I don't talk about abductions. And and I so, agree. I think that's the term abduction is so loaded as a term. It is as it is as a hot button term as you can possibly get. I mean, and then I think that you know, but the term contactee just smells of like Sedona, Arizona, and the term yeah, experiencer just feels like I should you know like I should be listening to bad new age music or something like that. So I don't know what to call this event. I, you know, though, and I, you know, feel like when I say, like, you know, I feel like I might have at one point some events that could quite possibly, in some circumstances, point to some sort of UFO abduction, maybe event. And, yeah. uh, and I, I don't know how else to say. I won't acknowledge anything like that. So, you know, never, not ever. And, and I, I, I try not to either, and I don't think I say it in the forum, but I think it's implied. Well, I'll tell you what, what's implied here to me, having read your messages in the forum, having listened to you, is that you're very sincere. Very straightforward, and I agree with David. Everything you say rings of honesty that you're trying to figure out something that you don't have quite the grasp on, and that, to me, lends it a greater level of credibility. I'll add that um, something that I didn't expect and something we haven't talked about at all here is uh, in my life in the last couple of years since I've come out of the 
you know, and, and started to talk about this. My life has been so completely awash in very strange synchronicities that to me seem intertwined with this phenomenon. Um, some of the synchronicities are simple and silly. I talked about a few of them with, with uh, David, and they're not very exciting, but they're, they're genuinely odd. And also connected to this that I, that I don't really know how to wrap my mind around this. It feels like part of my journey, to use another loaded kind of new age term, is that uh, I feel like I'm at a place of, this is going to sound so uh, flighty, but I feel like I'm at a place in my life of like expanded consciousness. I feel like I'm, I have a different and heightened spiritual awareness of the world around me than I may have had before struggling and trying to make sense of all these, these events. Mike Cleland, we're just about out of time, but that strikes me as some sort of fascinating illumination. And I think we'd love to have you come back in the future and talk more with us about different things. Mike Cleland, thank you for joining us on the Paracast. You're very welcome. Thank you, Mike. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in the Paracast. Paracast.